0: Thanks for downloading this episode of On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at On the Record, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com.
1: We have a very special treat for you today, thanks to the Public Relations Society of America's Los Angeles chapter and the PRSA Western District. This is a panel titled Presidential Perspectives from White House Communications Officials. Uh, It happened at the Biltmore Hotel in downtown Los Angeles on Tuesday, July thirteenth, two 2010. Um, the uh, welcome was given by Eric Moses. He is the president of PRSA Los Angeles Chapter. Uh, the introduction of the moderator was delivered by Dennis Walcott of the Walcott Company, who also produced the event. And the um, uh, panel was moderated by Dan Schnurr. He's the director of the Jesse M. Unruh Institute of Politics at USC. Uh, and the panelists were Camille Johnston, director of communications for First Lady Michelle Obama, Noella Rodriguez, Press Secretary for First Lady Laura Bush. Sheila Tate, Press Secretary to First Lady Nancy Reagan. And David Demarest, Director of Communications for President George H.W. Bush. And uh, we are going to play the uh, panel for you in its entirety after this.
0: On the Record Online is the official podcast of the Public Relations Society of America International Conference. To hear in-depth one-on-one interviews with PRSA conference keynoters, presenters, and panelists, search keyword PRSA on our show blog at ontherecordpodcast.com. Join us October 16th through 19th in Washington, D.C. for the PRSA 2010 International Conference.
2: Camille Johnson is the Director of Communications to First Lady Michelle Obama. In addition, she was the former Director of Communications for Tipper Gore. I think we're very lucky to have Camille here tonight, given the very busy schedule of our First Lady and her initiative on everything from child obesity to the Let's Move campaign, to obviously the other public and private uh, public policy initiatives that she's been carrying on behalf of this administration. Now, Camille is our very own Los Angeles area product, and she is the graduate of a very well-respected school in Westwood that I'm not allowed to say the name of publicly because I teach at USC. (laughs) Former Governor Gray Davis told me that if you drew a line across California horizontally to divide the state in half, with half the population of the south and half the population of the north, you would draw that line not through Bakersfield, not through Santa Barbara, but right down Wilshire Boulevard. (laughs) <laughs> so Camille is a very proud graduate of one of Northern California's finest public universities. <laughs> she, is also a, she was also a senior advisor to both the 1992 and 1996 Clinton-Gore campaigns. And in between Democrats being in the White House, Camille was a communications consultant for the Entertainment Industry Foundation on the very successful Stand Up to Cancer campaign. She was also the senior vice president of communications for the Los Angeles Dodgers, And prior to joining the Dodgers, Johnson was Vice President of Corporate Communications for Rodale Incorporated, the largest independent publisher in the United States. In her spare time, Camille served as Press Secretary for Labor Secretary Robert Reich and Education Secretary Richard Riley. Once again, join me in welcoming Camille Johnson. That's either one very ardent Dodger or UCLA or Obama fan in the back of the room. Yes, I
3: heard that. It's probably a relative. All three. (laughs) Um,
2: Noelia Rodriguez is the Forum Director for the Institute of Politics at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. In 2001, Noelia was recruited by First Lady Laura Bush to be her Press Secretary and her Director of Communications at the White House, a position she held for the first thousand days of the Bush administration. And as I suspect many of you recall, one of those first thousand days was the date of September 11th, 2001, when terrorists attacked uh, the World Trade Center, uh, the Pentagon, and of course, the plane crashed in rural Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Uh, Throughout that extraordinary period, Noelia counseled the First Lady on how to represent the administration's public policy agenda, how to promote her education, women's health and children's advocacy initiatives. And because of Noelia's overall efforts, Laura Bush became the first first lady in history to record a full presidential address among a host of other achievements, which we'll hear about shortly. Noelia also has a very strong Los Angeles communication. Before her current role at Harvard, she was the vice president of corporate communications for Univision Communications Inc. and was the chief of staff and director of external affairs for the Broad Foundation. Before joining the Bush White House, the, Noelia was the president and CEO of LA Convention 2000, the host committee for the Democratic National Convention, and before that, she served as deputy mayor in the administration of Los Angeles Mayor Richard J. Reardon. Please join me in welcoming Noelia Rodriguez.
0: I'm going
2: to skip ahead for a minute for reasons I'll explain in just a moment, but sitting directly to my left
4: is <laughs> she Sheila That's Tate. a bad sign. <laughs>
2: payback as hell isn't it. <laughs> Sheila Tate is vice chairman of Powell Tate, a division of the global public relations and communications firm Weber Shandwick. Sheila's political and governmental experience ranges from being White House press secretary to First Lady Nancy Reagan, and later in the George Bush presidential campaign in transition. During the transition in 1989, she served as press secretary for President-elect Bush. She was also communications director for the 1996 Republican convention in San Diego. Her business career has covered a wide variety of assignments. Sheila has been involved in international crisis work on behalf of Johnson & Johnson, Food Lion, and Crayola, public policy issues involving Taiwan, Tunisia, and Saudi Arabia, and major trade, energy, defense, and mining issues around the globe. Her litigation communications experience spans 20 years, including high-profile cases for such clients as Mr. Coffee and Vincent and Elkins during the Enron crisis. Please join me in welcoming Sheila Tate. <laughs>
5: <shelf>. <laughs> Sheila,
2: of all the... Uh, of all the extraordinary panelists, I hope you brought a lot of business cards tonight because something tells me you're, they're going to be in great demand in we just an a, hour or so. A,
5: a fax machine. A fax
2: machine. It's your
5: rocks machine.
2: You're dating ourselves. <laughs> Finally, David Demarest. David Demarest is vice president of public affairs at Stanford University. But Dave Demarest also served four years as an assistant, as assistant to President George H.W. Bush, and was a member of the White House senior staff. As White House communications director, he worked directly with the president, the White House chief of staff, and the cabinet. In that capacity, David managed a broad range of White House communications activities, including presidential speech writing, public liaison, media relations, and intergovernmental affairs. After leaving the White House, David served as executive vice president and director of corporate communications at Bank America Corp., and then as executive vice president for global corporate relations at Visa International. He also founded Aspen Line Reputation Strategies, a specialized reputation management and communications consulting firm based in Sausalito, California. But somehow left out of his biography, (laughs) before joining the Bush administration as Director of Communications, David Demarest held the same title, Director of Communications, for the 1988 bush Quail presidential campaign, where he served in the thankless, job is one of my first bosses in politics,
4: <laughs> well so put. I have waited
2: more than 20 years for this. But if those, as the questioning goes on tonight, if it seems like demo are a lot harder and a lot nastier than the others, please trust me that they're all deserving. <laughs> and join me in welcoming one of the most uh, effective, one of the most respected communications professionals in the business. And an individual who I learned an extraordinary amount on uh, from early in my career. My friend and my mentor, David Demarest. Now, when I worked with Dave and for a a briefer period of time with Sheila, we also had the great privilege of serving with an extraordinary communication specialist. Our, our good, dear friend, a uh, gentleman by the name of Peter Teeley. And Pete Teeley told me a story one day about what it meant to be a press and media operator from a candidate. So before we, op- before we go on to questions here, I'm going to tell you this story just to give you a little bit of framework w- with, for what these four individuals dealt with over the course of their political and government careers on almost a daily basis. So it was early in the 1988 presidential campaign, And George Bush Sr., or as we now refer to him, Bush Classic, was campaigning in Iowa. And for some reason, this was pre-DemRest and pre-Tate, the communications team for the campaign had given him an unforgivably exhausting schedule. They had scheduled the Vice President of the United States to visit six different cities in Iowa, give speeches in each one of those cities all in one day. And to make matters worse, in that speech, they'd given him a brand new stump speech to give that day that he'd never seen before. And to make matters even worse, in that speech was a reference to the Greek historian Thucydides. <laughs> <laughs> now, for those of you who don't remember the presidency of George H.W. Bush, I think he can be generally agreed Democrat or Republican. He's a brilliant man, an extraordinary public servant. But occasionally, from time to time, might get a, the slightest bit tongue-tied. Is that fair, David? Yeah. So Thucydides was not a particularly fair or a particularly nice thing <laughs> to, to give to him without any advance warning. So it first event of the day, it's a breakfast in Atomua, Iowa. The Vice President of the United States gets up and he says, my friends, he says, I think back to the words of the Greek philosopher, Thucydides, <laughs> Thucydides, Thucydides, And we go on throughout the day. We go to a coffee in Davenport, Iowa. I'll never forget the words of the Greek philosopher (laughs) Thukadai. And it went on throughout the day. Finally, by that evening, the vice presidential trip gets to Des Moines, Iowa, the largest city in that state. And the vice president is giving a keynote speech at a Republican Party dinner. And right before he goes out on stage, Pete Teeley asks the vice president for a copy of his speech. vice president, Bush hands it to him. Pete scribbles on it for a minute, hands it back. That night, Vice President George H.W. Bush is talking to the Republican Party of Iowa, and he says, my friends, I will never forget the words of the Greek philosopher Plato,
1: who reminds (laughs) us
3: that...
2: So PR specialists, whether they're called press secretaries or communications directors, they never get the credit they deserve, but they're the ones, just like all of you, who make their bosses look good. So let's turn this into a conversation. Camille, I'm going to start with you, but this is a question I'm going to put to all four of the panelists. So tell us, Camille, is it really like the West Wing?
3: Uh, Actually, I think parts of it really are. I, I don't think that there's, there are fewer places on Earth where you'll find more people who are so committed to the work that they do on an everyday basis and for the people that they work for. And I also think that one of the realities of the West Wing is that you juggle lots of subjects all in one day. Um, with as many incoming as there are outgoing. So you're promoting as many, you're receiving as many messages as you have to promote. And I think that's one of the things about life in the White House that you don't actually get to choose what you wanna talk about that day. Um, And I think that's one of the things that lots of people saw through the West Wing that uh, was particularly resonant for people who have worked there.
2: The best laid plans, Noelia. You can spend months and months and months preparing a program, and then all of a sudden something happens to throw you off stride.
6: Exactly right. And uh, the one thing that is different from real life West Wing compared to the one on TV is those of us in real life were much better looking. (laughs) (laughs) Clearly. Of course. (laughs) Yeah, you can best laid plans. And for me, my experience at the White House was September 11th. Uh, You know, that was going to be a big news day for us in the East Wing because Mrs. Bush was going to testify before Senator Kennedy's committee on um, the education summit that she had hosted that summer. And it was going to be the first time since the inauguration that she and Hillary Clinton, then Senator Clinton, were going to be together in the same place at the same time. So we had a whole slog of media traveling with us and waiting for us at the Capitol. And so of course, history changed between the time we departed the White House and the time six months later that we arrived at Senator Kennedy's office when the first plane had struck, the first tower. And then by the time we got to the hill, the second plane had, had struck. So best laid plans of a testimony and having a conversation about education completely went out the window because we were then, were then in response mode to what had happened.
2: Well, a lot of us here tonight have done work in crisis communications, but certainly not of that scope. In just a couple minutes, I'm going to want to come back, and I know our audience is going to want to come back and hear more about those days as well. But, Dave, let me ask you, you're you're teaching a class at Stanford University now, and I'm sure your students are saying, Professor Demarest, were you Sam Seaborn? Were you Josh Lyman? You have to tell them you were Toby Moffitt, don't you? I
4: I was Toby, yes. (laughs) Um, And, and, you know, the, the analogy to the West Wing, there are some similarities to it in terms of the intensity level of the White House I don't think our dialogue was quite as snappy uh, as uh, you saw on the West Wing. Uh, but to the points raised earlier, uh, you know, spontaneity is the uh, enemy of the White House. And the staff tries to create an environment that is very predictable. And you know, to outline what the objectives are and how to have everything work in a very orderly fashion. And the media, often watches for where that starts to unravel and they are very quick to look at how does the White House react when things don't go according to plan. Um, We had many many events uh, in the Rose Garden that never made any news whatsoever. Um, uh, I think Peggy Noonan in her book referred to them as Rose Garden rubbish uh, that they were just events that were really for the constituency that was being invited to the uh, Rose Garden. And there would be uh, you know, press coverage, uh, but it never saw the light of day because there wasn't any news committed. And one day we were doing one of those events, and it was uh, to the D.A.R.E. group, the Drug Abuse Resistance Education group. And it was a lovely event. And each one of the, we had selected three uh, young people to come up and read their anti-drug pledge. Um, before the president was going to make remarks, and person number one did his, and young lady did one after him, and then the third young lady got up, and she read what we had all read, but then she read two paragraphs about why the president should be against the death penalty. (laughs) Well, that's when the cameras start rolling. And everyone was cued to, okay, what is President Bush going to do with this clearly off uh, message uh, uh, situation? And he was a pro. And when he got up to speak, and there was a lot of buzz in the crowd, when he got up to speak, he turned to this young lady and he said it took a lot of courage to do that. And then he went on to give whatever his prepared remarks were. But there is this anticipation that when things go a little bit off the plan, how do you react then? And that's when I think communications professionals earn their keep, that's when the principals, the president, the vice president, the first lady, when they're kind of thrown something that they're not anticipating, that's when you really see what people are made of.
2: Sheila, there's an old military dictum that says, no battle plan survives first contact with the enemy. And so what we've heard from all three of the other panelists now, in one way or another, is expect the unexpected, at least to the greatest degree possible. Now in West Wing it's a little bit easier because you're able to look a few pages ahead in the script and know what's coming and someone's (laughs) written lines for you on how to react to that unexpected circumstance. I'm guessing it doesn't work that way in real life in the White House. What happens when the unexpected lands in your lap.
5: well. First of all, um, let me come clean. I have only watched West Wing once, <laughs> and it was so far afield from the White House I worked in that I never watched it again. Um, and and mainly for the reason that you mentioned, David, it was so glib that it was silly to me. It just we just did, we didn't operate that way. And but anyway, um,
2: so the unexpected happened. The
5: unexpected. Well, for us, it happened on March 31st of the first year when, when President Reagan was shot. Um, it tends to ruin your day. <laughs> and, uh, <yeah. laughs> but, you know, it's interesting. I would say um, while it, while we had some communications snafus on the staff side with, you know, for instance, Alexander Haig saying he was in control. Um, Ronald Reagan is the one who really showed us how to communicate that day because, and I watched this happen, it was the most amazing thing. Nancy Reagan and I jumped in the limo and went right to the hospital as soon as we got the word. And we were told that he he was okay but he was just going to the hospital to be checked and she wasn't staying home, she wanted to go. So we jump in the limo, go right to the hospital, We get there and and he looks at her and Mike Deaver had come up and said said to her, he has been shot. And that was the first time she heard it standing there in the hospital. And she looks at him and he said, honey, I forgot to duck. (laughs) They then start wheeling him down this long corridor that was, every doctor in the hospital had shown up to, you know, Rubberneck, I guess. <laughs> and and they were lined down this long hospital corridor, and they start pushing him through. And I was standing on one side, and Mike Deaver and Ed Meese and Jim Baker were over here. And as they got to, to them, the gurney stopped, and they're looking down at him like this. And he pulls this thing off his face and looks at them, and he said... Um, what the hell did
4: he say? <laughs> <laughs> Republicans. I guess he wasn't a Republican?
5: No, that was later. He said to the doctors, I hope you all are Republicans. No. Oh, no, he looked at the three of them and he said, who's minding the store? <laughs> and he had a way with, and essentially what he wanted to do was get a message out that reassured people. And he gave us the fodder to do that. And it was, you know, it was a, one of those wonderful, magical experiences horrible magical experience that that taught you a lot about how to how to react with grace under pressure like that.
2: Well, let me ask you a follow-up, Sheila. Obviously that day was an extraordinary one. But President Reagan, like President Obama, is recognized as one of the outstanding political communicators mm-hmm. in recent in recent political history. What lessons do you draw from your work with President Mrs. Reagan? that uh, uh, that you think other candidates and elected officials would be well served to well to follow up.
5: Ronald Reagan was an extraordinary person he had a he had a plain spoken way about him that made you trust him he um, and and he never used two syllables when one would do he he was. He had a natural gift for communicating. I can't... And he was also... I always thought, before I worked in politics, I always assumed that politicians acted one way in private and another way in public. Ronald Reagan, there wasn't an inch of difference between the, the private Ronald Reagan and the public Ronald Reagan. What you saw was genuine, and I think that's a great deal of why he was affected.
2: Dave, Dave, let's go on along those lines. George H.W. Bush was a genuine, good, kind, personable individual. Anyone you ever met who met him, who agreed or disagreed with him politically, said that. Talk about, though, given the media hothouse environment that you were talking about a moment ago, how do you communicate that out of the White House? I'm guessing every single person in this room has a CEO, has a client of some kind who's a terrific person, and the challenge is making sure that the broader audience sees that. How do you get those personal qualities out?
4: Well, it's challenging, and it's um, uh, especially in a place like the White House or in the uh, C-suite at a, a company where there's such a microscope on the leadership and everything is analyzed uh, uh, with how that leadership is conveyed. Um, But it really starts with, I think, authenticity, that you have to uh, have a communication plan or a communication process that looks towards who is this person really and how do we convey those kinds of qualities in a public domain. Um, If you try to create someone.
2: Sorry, Dave, I would just say that in a PRSA audience of 200 people, (laughs) there's bound to be one iPhone or Blackberry that didn't get turned off. But uh, if if we can turn them off, that would be be terrific. Thank you, go ahead, Dave.
4: But I I think it it is a huge mistake to try to make make someone into someone they're not. And uh, George Bush followed Ronald Reagan. He followed the great communicator. One of the challenges we had was that he would be the first to admit he was not an orator, and that he was not Ronald Reagan when it came to oratory. He was very good at uh, uh, small group meetings. He was very good at uh, the give and take with media. Not in the very formal East Room press conference vehicle, but in the small intimate kinds of conversations that you might have in the press briefing room. And so we tried to play to those strengths. And every time we would send him a speech that sounded a little Reagan-esque, meaning a whole lot of you know, intense rhetoric, we'd get it back saying, no thanks, this is too flowery, this is not me. And we learned to adapt to his style instead of us trying to make him adapt to what we thought was you know, kind of oratorical uh, excess.
2: Two very different presidents, two very different sets of communication strengths, two different ways to play to those strengths. And Nalelia, let me ask you a question, because it seems to me your challenge coming into the White House with Mrs. Bush was a bit different. Unlike Ronald Reagan, who'd spent a career not just in politics, but as a communicator in many other arenas, and unlike the first President Bush, who'd spent an entire career communicating as a candidate and elected and appointed official. Laura Bush had never spent a great deal of time in the public eye. That's correct. What Sheila and David both said is you played your candidates, you played your elected officials, you played your client's client strength. What if on day one, because they haven't done this before, what if you don't know what those strengths are? What do exactly. you do then?
6: That was kind of interesting. In fact, she often tells a story and even says it in her book, her, her new book, that uh, when she married George Bush, she, they made a deal together that um, she would never have to give a speech. And, he, and he, would, you know, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't have to count on her for any public speaking, and that was the deal when they got married. And, of course, that changed because as soon as they got married, he was running for Congress, so she had to get out there and, and do the stump. And when she went to the White House, she wasn't practiced in, in a lot of uh, media interviews and public speaking. So it was quite a, um, an adjustment, if you will. So what we did was, for the first six to eight months... Um, I, to get her comfortable, we developed a strategy to do a series of regional interviews. So we had one-on-ones all across the country, whether we were in Ohio or Arizona or California. We would do one-on-one interviews, and it got us two things. It got her the ability to get, get her message out, and it would give the local press, who would never have imagined having access to the First Lady of the United States, for a one-on-one interview, she was able to build that goodwill with them. So by the time September 11th came around, she was well rehearsed. And if we hadn't done all of those things to get her comfort level up and get her exposure, then she would never have been ready to do Meet the Press and 60 Minutes and the National Press Club in the span of two weeks after September 11th. So it was uh, one of the best compliments I've ever had in my life. When I left the White House, she said to me, I didn't always want to do the things you asked me to, but I was always glad I did. And it was a testament to the kind of work that we did together to get her practiced.
0: The top-rated, longest-running social media communications training program comes to Los Angeles this August 2010. Bring your laptop, log on, and learn the ins and outs of effective social media communications and search engine optimization. Reserve your space by logging on to www.NewMediaPRBootCamp.com.
2: Now, Camille
5: like
2: we've been talking about <laughs> principles, candidates, elected officials, and in these cases, spouses, playing to their natural strengths. Mm-hmm. But some of it isn't just about the person. Some of it, as we all know from our professional experience, is about the environment. Now, Michelle Obama followed in Laura Bush uh, a first lady who is very traditional in the way she approached the role. Hillary Clinton, On the other hand, it had been much more forceful in in, in the way she saw the role of First Lady. So, on one hand, you have your your principles, Mrs. Obama's strengths. On the other hand, you've got this environment where people are saying, is she going to be like Hillary? Is she going to be like Laura? What do you do when those comparisons get thrown at you all of a sudden?
3: Well, I think you have to ignore them and go back to the original premise, which is what is authentic to the person um, who is the First Lady. I think one of the reasons Mrs. Obama has been so successful is that she herself has not changed from the person that she's always been in order to be First Lady. This is a person who held herself to very high standards throughout her life and knew that there would be high expectations in this role and was prepared to meet them. Um, And in doing so, what she chose in order to create the world that she wanted to live in was to be a mother first and to make sure that her children have what they need from a parental standpoint so that family life is paramount and she can feel good about going out and doing work. And then she chose things that she was passionate about herself before she even became First Lady. And in doing so, she spends her time doing things that she already loves and enjoys. And I think that that comes through when you see her at a public event, that she's spending time doing something that she thinks is important and that she knows that through this platform she can have an impact on. And so I don't actually think that you can play to the expectation game. You really have to play your own game and do what suits you naturally. And in doing so, I think you're a better communicator and a more effective advocate for what you believe in.
2: And that leads to... I guess two things, one very quick, and hopefully we can spend more time on the anti-obesity campaign a little bit later, because it really has been a phenomenal effort. The quick question is, do you, uh, uh, her speech to the NAACP I thought was just phenomenal, and in particular I loved, I, I loved the line, dessert is not a right. <laughs> Did you write that?
3: No, yeah, she wrote that.
2: She wrote that, as every good press secretary
3: says. <laughs> <laughs> Well, every good press secretary often has a good person as a client. So to speak.
2: What, what, I, what I would like to ask you about, though, in, in more seriousness, I do want to come back to the public policy component a little later. Mm-hmm. But uh, the Obama's daughters are the youngest children who've occupied the White House in, in many many years, and as we've seen, there's always somewhat of a tension between the public life of a president and his family, and the private life, particularly when it involves children. Mm-hmm. You know. Uh, 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 the, the, the Bush White, White House that immediately preceded yours worked very hard to protect the private lives of the president's daughters we remember the horrific Sardinette live skip that was done early in President Clinton's administration at the expense of his daughter for which uh, uh, the producers ultimately apologized it seems to me and I will concede at the beginning that the President and the First Lady make these decisions themselves, mm-hmm. but it seems to me, as the Communications Director for the First Lady of the United States, you are probably in a better position to decide how and where to draw that line between what's public and what's private when it comes to those little girls than just about anybody else.
3: How do you draw that line? Are we. Well, a couple of things. One, there were some parameters that were set during the campaign that have carried over. Um, Two, I think that now that they live in that house where you are constantly exposed and where kids do not have the run of the house, so to speak, because there are thousands of visitors coming through every day, um, you do set some ground rules. Um, But I do think that for all of the rules that the media won't play by, they do play by protecting children, and in particular, young children and I think that has been particularly helpful. Um, Not in every instance, but in most cases, they do defer to the notion that these kids are entitled to some level of privacy and are entitled to um, being children. I also think it helps that um, previous administrations had put similar rules in place, and so things have carried over. Um, It's different that these kids are so much younger. Uh, I think it'll be harder for them as they get older, but I think more often than not, the one place that you can really play ball with the media is the rules around the kids.
2: Sheila, obviously President and Mrs. Reagan's children were, were older by the time uh, they moved into the White House. But the challenges between public and private life still remained. You wanted to speak to
5: Well, I'll t- I tell you what instantly came to my mind um, uh, was the treatment of Sarah Palin's children and And the uh, um, almost double standard the press sometimes uh, draws in that respect because I mean I, I'm, I still get chills when I think about the way they you know from David Letterman on down treated those children. Um, it was hard. Um, the Reagan children were um, adults, young adults. Um, and for the most part, the press left them alone because they weren't at the White House. Um, but there was an awful lot of the gossip column type coverage that, that we just couldn't do anything about. And um, we, just, we just refused to talk about them, period. You know, we, didn't, we, just, we just had that rule. And so we wouldn't cooperate in any kind of story that, or any in line of inquiry from any of the reporters. But it's a very nasty. I mean, that the way Ch- Chelsea Clinton tr- was treated was just revolting, and um, I think that's when, um, at least as far as White House children are concerned, I think that's when the press recognized the blowback was so bad that they they had to to start drawing a line.
2: Now, uh, th- th- this gets into a, a broader discussion. Obviously, when You and I were in Washington in the 1980s. The gossip columnists wrote for a relatively small number of print publications. It was at least theoretically a controllable universe. That's not the case anymore, and it wasn't the case when George W. Bush and Laura Bush moved into the White House novella. Given the inherent challenges of teenagers, given the inherent challenges of teenagers in the public eye, given the inherent challenges of teenagers in the public eye with a wide, sprawling internet looking to gossip in ways that we couldn't have ever imagined right. a decade or so earlier. How do you take that out? It was quite
6: challenging for us, and of course, the teenagers that I dealt with were, had fake IDs to not be teenagers,
2: <laughs> and... Um... Listen to all the nervous
6: laughter. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And so because we had the rule that the daughters were off limits, they were not the public figures. They didn't run for office. They were in college and doing things that every one of us probably did when we were in college as as freshmen. Um, We really stayed away from talking about them, but 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 the network was out there. And one of the things that I thought as a communicator that I will always appreciate when I was at the White House in those early days was because we weren't talking about the daughters. They were off limits. But I'll never forget that I got calls from Lisa Caputo, who was um, First Lady Hillary Clinton's uh, press secretary, and Neil Lattimore, who had also been press secretary for Hillary. They called me and said, "How can I be helpful? What message can I put out there on your behalf?" And I obviously took advantage of that of that offer because they were great surrogates for us. So the 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 learning experience for us was to always have surrogates who, are if you're not able to be out there in front of the message, have somebody, and in our case, these were Democrats who were willing to speak on our behalf, was even much more impactful. So to be able to reach across the aisle and, and build those bridges. So we used them. I mean, I don't know, it's even eight years later with you in the White House, it's, it's just a whole eternity different in terms of social media and the internet and getting those having to combat those messages that are not your own. So I really, my hat's off to Camille and her colleagues who are now in the White House having to deal in this whole new world.
2: I I want to get back in a few minutes to the question of technology and media because it's something we all deal with, both the advantages and the disadvantages of it. But I want to switch tacks a little bit and and come to you, Dave, on on another question. You made the absolutely correct point earlier about how the best laid plans get thrown astray because things happen. Um, But let's go back even before that. As a communications director, one of your primary roles, if not your preeminent role, is developing a message. That is, taking the raw material that is the president's, the client's agenda, and turning it into something that the media and ultimately the public, ultimately the audience, can understand and process and ultimately support. Can you talk for a couple minutes about how you take that raw material. For some of us, it's a product. For some of us, it's, it's an issue. For some of us, it's much. For you, it was much, much broader. Talk about developing a proactive message out of the raw material of a policy agenda.
4: Well, I, and you've got, I, got thirty seconds. By the yeah, way. Right. Uh, that's a pretty large question. Um, I go back to something that I learned in politics long before I even had an association with George Bush which was that there's a logic to communications and how you uh, present an agenda or a platform or, a, or an issue. And it goes something like research, strategy, tactics, plan, budget. And there, it's a sequence and it's based on the premise that um, you really have to have a very rigorous understanding of the contextual environment within which you operate before you get to what's your strategy for how to achieve certain objectives and then tactical questions come next. And what I found was the more we really understood what the dynamic was with the electorate, the more rigorous that understanding was, the better strategies that we would be able to come up with. And there are kind of tried and true principles in communications. Uh, We all know that the message doesn't get through when it's a mixed message. Um, after the, the uh, when, when uh, uh, Iraq invaded Kuwait in 1990 in August, um, there was a tremendous amount of support for what we were doing and what was then called Desert Shield uh, in the public. Um, as the months went on, we went into the off-year elections and we had the budget deal and we pitched the tax pledge in that budget deal and the president would go out and he would campaign for Republican candidates and he would say the following, "Uh, I really need more Republicans in Congress because I have to get my agenda through. And he'd go through that whole litany of why he needed more Republicans in Congress. In the same speech, he would say at the end, but politics stops at the water's edge and we are in Desert Shield and we have some real challenges in the Middle East and I want to compliment my Democratic colleagues in the House and Senate who have st- stood firm with us in our policies on the Gulf.
5: But don't vote for them. Right.
4: <laughs> so you ha- you- we watched our poll numbers go like this because the public was not really sure what were we trying to say, and it wasn't until the elections were over that we started to get our kind of communications house in order and we focused entirely on the Gulf, and we talked about instead of 10 reasons why we're in the Gulf, we talked about four or three reasons we were in the Gulf. We were much, had much more clarity about why we were there, what our objectives were, and what success, the definition of success was. And that started to turn things around so that by the time uh, the war actually happened and we were looking to get the, uh, the vote in the House and the Senate, Uh, In January, we were successful. Camille, you're at somewhat of a disadvantage in this
2: discussion, in that unlike the other three panelists, we don't know how it's all going to turn out. (laughs) Dave, I think, regardless whether you're Republican or Democrat, Libertarian, Vegetarian, it doesn't matter, (laughs) Dave, I think, gave us an excellent overview on how an elected official and his or her team develop a message Talk, and he also talked about the challenges inherent in it. Can I, can I interrupt
4: you for one second on that? And it, when I talked about that mixed message, and it goes back to this authenticity point, mm-hmm. one of the things about George Bush was that he wanted to ensure that the big issue, which was the Gulf, that was the big national security issue. Mm-hmm. That trumped everything else. So he recognized that his message was not going to be all that clear but he had his eyes set on something that was really authentic to him. He both wanted to be the party leader, but he also had very specific objectives in the Gulf. And trying to marry those two was tough, but I think it went to what kind of a person he was, that he you know, recognized that there was going to be fallout from not having the clearest kind of communication.
2: For those of you who haven't noticed, Camille has a look on her face that says, how nice it would be to only have one big thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, to talk a little bit about the challenges that, that, that you face in this administration. Um, I mean, th- this isn't a partisan debate. We, 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 you know, we don't have to necessarily resolve tonight the best way to fix the economy, the best way to address Afghanistan or the oil spill or anything like that, but talk about the challenge of having multiple challenges right. from a communication standpoint.
3: Well, I think that's particularly true, though, of the West Wing. Mm -hmm. And so there is a benefit to working in the East Wing, which is there are fewer incoming and more outgoing. And so for much of what we do, it's about creating a proactive media strategy as opposed to a reactive media strategy. And I think that the benefit to this was that Mrs. Obama had things bubble up that she wanted to have an impact on, and she was very clear about those from the beginning. So it was about creating a plan around things that she wanted to do and to be known for and to have um, success with. Um, The garden, I think, has become something uh, kind of around the world that people would never expect a little 1,100-square-foot garden to have the kind of impact that it has. But for Mrs. Obama, it was a way about starting a conversation with kids about where food comes from, how it grows, and the impact it can have on your own health. And it grew into the Let's Move campaign. And so there was this natural progression from starting with something that was very basic, a very easy message to deliver, one that was clear, one that the media was kind of enraptured with to the extent that having a first lady dig up the South Lawn was a wonderful picture. And it meant something to people and it was an easy get. And in doing so, we were able to spend almost a year putting all the Things in place in order for the Let's Move campaign to actually be very comprehensive, to have major initiatives behind it, to have major support behind it, to have legislation behind it, to have all of the things that go into a a successful uh, campaign and a goal that is achievable and ambitious. And in doing so, you can look at the last 18 months and know what she's done over the last 18 months and see where we are in the process of success and I think it all really started with her own notion of this garden that she brought with her to the White House thinking I wonder if that can be done will they really let me dig up the south lawn and will this work we didn't even know it would really grow suppose nothing had happened and um, (laughs) that would have been a problem a different PR problem Um, but here we have this garden that is the first thing that kings and queens and prime ministers ask her about when they meet her first. How's the garden? Everybody knows about the garden. Well, Sheila,
2: she, she, well, let me ask you. Camille makes a great point that a garden is not just a garden. And it's not just a symbol. It's an effort at humanizing someone who might otherwise be walled off from the public. And the first lady for whom you worked, like the current first lady, moved into the White House with some misperceptions uh, about her,
5: you could say that,
2: <laughs> and I, I, I was struck as Camille was talking about the garden about the importance of symbolism and the process of humanizing mm-hmm. and i 'm wondering if you can talk about that. I was sitting listening experience. to
5: it, and God, I wish we 'd thought of it <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know for us, we took a year to get our act together, and but we were we were hammered by everything else in the meantime, and, and um, the assassination attempt on Ronald Reagan set us back because of the, the intense heightened security that resulted, as you can imagine, we couldn't go anywhere for a while. Um, we, um, when I first met her, um, she told me she would like to find a way to get involved in the issue of uh, youth drug abuse. And uh, so we diligently went about meeting with all the various groups that have that are in the, the field, both prevention and treatment people. And I always look back on it, and I think I should have had a photo op at the beginning of every one of those meetings <laughs> so that people knew what she was doing, because we just did them. We just had the meetings, and we figured out how best... To, to help Nancy Reagan get her message out on drugs. And eventually, um, because she did care about this issue, eventually the press came around to recognize how uh, committed she was to it. And it it went from being rather wide in its scope to, be, to narrowing down into that that people still associate with or just say no. Um, So it became a a simplified and stronger campaign over the years. At the same time, it moved from um, raising money for for, uh, treatment centers, shining a lot of media spotlights on prevention programs, and then bringing in governor's wives and trying to, to... create a broader coalition and then we went international with it and brought in other first ladies, it's that kind of growing circles of influence that helped over time but in the meantime um, we took our lumps that first year And
2: well, Like every 40 something in the room I remember her showing up on different strokes to talk about drug abuse also so <laughs>
5: um, yeah. Noelia
2: let, let, me, let me ask you this um, we've been talking about symbolism and about humanizing now, as we all know from our own clients, there are some people who are more capable of this than others. If any of you ever watched either Dick Cheney or Al Gore trying to communicate with a group of young children the way their <laughs> running mates would have, it's a pretty painful experience. It's a- <laughs> now, you talked earlier uh, about the, the first lady, Laura Bush, not having a great deal of experience in the public eye but being very at ease in certain circumstances. You also worked for Mayor Reardon, who as near as I can tell is totally at ease in every conceivable situation. Talk a little bit about how you figure that out. Where can you you put them and where can't you? It's not just trial and error, I hope. I mean. (laughs)
6: Um, Yeah, Dick was pretty much managing everybody else's expectations instead of managing Dick because he's really his own man. And going from somebody who had so much exuberance and wanting any opportunity and every opportunity to be in front of a camera and a microphone to somebody like Mrs. Bush who was much more disciplined and very authentic, but very, very disciplined in the way she did things was quite an adjustment. Yes, very, very shy. And like, as Camille said, when Mrs. Obama was getting questions about, or you mentioned this about getting questions, how she was going to be her own person or like Hillary or like Laura or Barbara, Mrs. Bush had the same thing. Now, Mrs. Bush had the double whammy of not only being compared to Hillary Clinton, but being compared to her mother-in-law, which is, you know, who wants to be compared to their mother-in-law? Was-
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, Dave, A- do you want to weigh in on that?
6: <laughs> so, she always said, "I'm going to be like Laura Bush." I'm going to be who I am and, and who I've always been. And I think we've seen, now with the benefit of eight years of her in the, in the White House, that she was very authentic and she was her own person. Uh, the beautiful thing about Laura Bush is that she's such a quick study, in contrast to my boss here in Los Angeles who was who liked scripts, if you will. I mean, after all, we are in Hollywood. And but Laura was such a quick study that it was always such a pleasure to to be her, her coach, if you will, because she got it the first time around. And so many of you, I'm sure, have that experience, but not as often as you'd like. And so relish it whenever you do get that experience, because regardless of whether somebody's a quick study or not, you still have to prepare as though they're not. And that's the that's the one thing that I never lost, even when I was working with somebody who was such a pro.
0: Since 2005, On the Record Online has been podcasting in-depth one-on-ones with journalists from the mainstream media about how they use the Internet to cover the news. If you're interested in what makes news, visit ontherecordpodcast.com and download interviews with journalists from CNN, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, Time, Newsweek, The New Yorker, Wired Magazine, and more. They're all free and available for immediate download at... On the record The
2: people who are the most confident yeah. are often the ones who need the most help. Anybody else ever heard that experience of <laughs> <the line>? Exactly. <laughs> Me neither.
6: Oh, yes, I can do this. <laughs>
2: um, so we, we, we have two options at this point. Uh, working with the leadership of PRSA, we put together optimistically a list of no fewer than 24 questions to go through with our panelists. <laughs> We've gone through four of them. <laughs> so option number one is to extend the program until 4.30 in the morning and then go get <laughs> breakfast together. Um, option number two would be to recognize that the world is an imperfect place. And I'm going to ask one last question of the, uh, of the panelists and then open up to a conversation uh, with questions from all of you. So the question I will ask, and I'll, I'll put it out to the group, is actually a choice, one of two questions. One question, which I'm sure every single one of you has answered five trillion times. Dave, maybe 10 trillion times being your age.
4: Okay. <laughs> Thank you.
2: Thank you. 22 years. It was worth it. Um, the other question I'm not sure you get as often. You may. Um, question number one is, what advice would you give to a young person who is interested in doing... Media or communications or press work in politics or government. But the other question, which I think some people in this room might be interested in as well, is what advice would you give to someone who's having a fairly successful career in private sector, PR or public affairs, and would like to make the transition into politics or government? So either or or both. It's advice time.
5: Well, my... My jaded advice is just to do it when you're young <laughs> because it is tough work. I mean, it's, it's uh, even in the White House, I mean, it, the, the White House is not as bad as a campaign, but there are times when you're in that building seven days every week and you're there evenings and um, it's not particularly glamorous. Don't tell anybody I told you that. <laughs> um,
2: yeah, just between the 200 of us. But I mean,
5: there's no, there's no substitute for a, uh, the experience of working on a campaign at any level, I don't think. And so, so I urge people always to, to get that experience. Go work on the hill, whatever floats your boat. But, but do it early, and you will build a network of friends that you will have the rest of your life. And it's, it's just an amazing experience, and it, it will change your life.
2: Camille, you uh, made the mistake of inhaling when I asked the question, so.
3: No, I was trying to decide which one I wanted to answer. Um, I guess, I mean, Sheila's right, campaign work and White House work and government work is often the work of the young, primarily because the pay isn't very good. But the experience, it's that too. <laughs> yes, the experience is something that you can't replace. Um, There are very few industries that give young people as much responsibility as politics and government does, um, and then enables you to grow in a career that you never really would have expected. Um, No one is more surprised to be back in the White House than I am, having left in 2000 the way that we did, and not having been part of the Obama campaign at all, to get a phone call and ask if I wanted to come back was really one of the um, nicest things that's happened to me um, in my career. Um, the second time around is completely different and in many ways better because you know what to expect Um, and in other ways you don't get the first kind of feeling that you got the first time around. But the East Wing has this very nice place um, where it's also the visitor's entrance and every morning you walk to work and you're standing next to a couple hundred people who are waiting in line for their White House tour and you see democracy in action to the extent that people show up knowing that this is the place on earth where um, decisions are made that affect us all. And it's the young and the old, it's the tour groups, it's the kids complaining that it's too hot, it's women in their Sunday best who never saw, thought they'd see the day for the first African American first president, first lady, and you do realize you're part of history. So there is something to politics that you don't get in the private sector, and even if you just do it for a short amount of time, it's really an incredible experience.
2: Well, how about you? I was talking to someone before the program started tonight, young woman, I believe in her mid-20s, who spent a few years working in private sector PR, who's thinking about doing politics and government, but isn't quite sure how to do it.
6: Right. What should we tell? And them? I had that transition in my in my career because I actually started in, cor- in the corporate world at Southern California Edison and had worked there, worked my way up the ranks. I'd started at the entry level as a secretary back when they were called secretaries mm-hmm. and uh, ended up in corporate communications, and that's how I caught the attention of the mayor's office when he was early in his, in his first term. And I remember when I got the call asking me if I'd be interested in coming to visit with somebody at City Hall to see if uh, it would be a good match to come and be a part of the, the communications team, I instantly thought, no way, are you kidding? The public sector—it's—I had this incredibly negative stereotype about what government work was all about, and I was I have to admit, publicly, quite the snob. And um, but something inside of me said, you know, wouldn't hurt to go see what the inside of City Hall would look like. So let's, you know, go go take it for a spin. And I went, and um, I have to be honest again—it my first visit there confirmed every notion. I had no desire. <laughs> To be at City Hall, I thought, Oh my God, I was right! I knew I was right. Well, what happened a couple of days after my first visit was the Northridge earthquake, and one of the things that we were talking about this earlier that I really love and call me sick, but it 's crisis communications, and uh, I, I think i 'm you know pretty good at it, and so I called to offer my services as a volunteer to help with the whatever they needed to roll up my sleeves and nobody called me back because they were too busy recovering. And about a month later I got a phone call and long, long story, not so long, I was hired and a month, less than a month later I was working at City Hall. And boy was I wrong about the public sector and politics. I loved it. And it was because I threw away all my preconceived notions and got into the business of making a difference in people's lives. And I have loved, even as I'm talking about it now, I've got chills going down my spine because if you ever have the opportunity to work in the public sector, don't think twice. Just do it and do whatever you have to do to be a part of it, whether you're volunteering, whether you're on a commission or can be in the elected's office directly, it is worth every weight in gold. It is just an experience unlike any other. And it makes you a better person, not to mention a better professional.
2: And, and Dave, aside from um, being lucky enough to have a, a boss who's smart and impressive and supportive and infinitely patient, <laughs> what other advice would you give to a young person looking to get involved in campaign politics or government?
4: Well, you know, I, I think a lot of us have shared some experiences at the White House, and the White House is an incredibly heady Intense, kind of controlled chaos uh, Working with huge issues And you know, the course of human events And being a fly on the wall of history Having said that um, It was a fantastic experience for me But when I was involved in local campaigns In campaigns where I would sit in somebody's kitchen And help them figure out a plan for county commissioner or figure out a plan for how to run for a state legislative seat in South Dakota. And these people were citis- true citizen legislators. These were people that weren't full-time politicians. They were doing this because they saw it as their civic duty. I found that to be incredibly gratifying and stimulating. And you know, at one point in my career, my mother called me up and said, you know, I think I'll run for county commission. <laughs> And I thought she was absolutely lost her mind. And she went on and ran for county commission and actually won by one vote. Uh, out so, of, so you came around. Yeah, yeah. and, and uh, I never told her who I voted for, but uh, no, she, I, it, and it, it told me that, you know, not only is it uh, something really wonderful about this country where you have people that are engaged and doing things at the very local level, but also that one vote makes a difference and participating makes a difference. And to me, um, getting that kind of experience as a young person in campaigns that are really where the rubber hits the road. Mm -hmm. I mean, you think about what really affects your future and the future of your kids or your families or whatever, often that they're the local school board race. Mm They're the people that are making decisions at the very local level, and unfortunately, they have the worst turnout ever. And that's where I think I would hope that people could get more experience, uh, young people could get more experience doing those kinds of things, because there's nothing like a political campaign that really hones the mind to a very specific objective, because if you don't win 50% plus one of those most likely to turn out on election day, you're going home and somebody else is taking office. It really hones the mind, and I think it's a really great training ground.
2: Well, let's, uh, let's do this. We don't have a lot of time left, but we do have two microphones, and we do have time for a few questions. So anybody who would like to ask a question of one or more of our panelists, now is, uh, now is your opportunity. And I will say this as the microphone, as people are coming to the microphones, I'll say what has struck me from this conversation. The last question aside, is how similar the challenges are that the, all of these individuals face in the public sector compared to what we go through in the private sector as well. Instead of presidents, it's CEOs. Instead of candidates, it's clients of other kind. But the dynamics of message development, of expecting the unexpected, of symbolism, of humanizing, I think the parallels are really, uh, are really extraordinary. But uh, let's take a few questions. And if, we could, if I can ask, if before you ask, if you identify who you are and... And, uh, if it, and, and who you're with.
3: Sure, my name is Judy Johnson, and I'm with Golan Harris. And my question is, as senior counselors, much of what our job is to do is to tell people what they need to hear, not often what they want to hear. And when you're talking about their reputation or a brand, which a president or a first lady is both, Um, What would your advice be on how you manage difficult conversations where you really feel like somebody has an idea that you do not think is good for them to do or to espouse? And how do you have that delicate conversation with success?
4: Um, It starts on the first day. It starts on the first day that you have a relationship with that client or that person. And probably, for me, it started in the interview process. When I was interviewed by the CEO of Visa, he said to me, what's the hardest part of your job? If you were to take this job, what's the hardest part? I said, it will be to tell you when you're wrong. And it's also the most important part of my job. And once I established that that's the person I was going to be as his counselor, that paved the way for me to say difficult things to him because I would always go back and say, remember when you hired me? (laughs) This is what I'm, What you're paying me to do. This is the kind of counsel you need to have. With a president of the country, it's a little harder, mm-hmm. uh, in all honesty. I would make a run at it one, maybe two times, and in a disagreement in a kind of cordial way with President Bush, and at the third time, he'd sort of look over his little half glasses, and he'd say, how many people in this room were elected president? <laughs> and I'd know to kind of back off, but I still did it. I still tried to make my point and say what, what, what I saw were the flaws in the approach or the thinking.
0: Thank you, Judy. I'm Tony Cordero, I'm the Public Affairs Manager for ConocoPhillips uh, here in Southern California. And I, I'm really curious about a very brief moment in time that some of you might have experienced, and that is the day before a major election. And in your case, maybe you would have said to Mrs. Obama, Mrs. Obama, tomorrow your husband's going to be president-elect. Or in your case, uh, Mrs. Reagan, tomorrow your husband's going to win all but five electoral votes. Or in your case, Mr. Bush, tomorrow you will not be elected or re-elected president. I'm curious about that brief moment and how you deliver that message to them in a way that's honest. Kind of dovetails on that question. It's honest, but at the same time is gentle.
2: It's a terrific follow-up question. How do you, you know, Dave talked a moment ago about the importance of being able to deliver bad news to power. How do you do it?
5: Well, it's, luckily it's not the press secretary's job <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> to yeah, exactly. deliver that particular message. Uh, I do remember, because I was George H.W. Bush's press secretary during the 88 campaign, um, about a week before the election, the polls were all moving our way. And we were sitting at the front of the plane after one of our, you know, five city uh, tours. And I said, admit it, you know you're going to win. And he looked at me and he, he, he was, he turned around, he started to walk away and he turned around and he said, I, you know, I don't know that I'm going to win. But I do know one thing, if I do win, This country is going to fall in love with Barbara Bush. I remember when he said that at the time, and and I think—I mean, I think all presidents are pretty superstitious, and or vice presidents or president wannabes—and they don't want to come to that moment where they feel confident that they've won because, literally, the day before, you're working your heart out. It's, it's the day that people go to the polls when you suddenly have nothing to do. That's the hardest day of the whole campaign. Mm-hmm. That, at least that was my experience. Yes, but it, really, that, that, oh, yes. that message does usually, I, in our case, it was usually delivered by the pollsters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right.
2: <laughs> okay, so the moral of the story is find someone else to deliver that message. <laughs> <laughs>
5: <laughs> Hello, I'm Camille Tolliver. I'm actually a CSU Dominguez Hills sophomore, and I have a question for Ms. Johnson. I would like to thank you for attending this event. I am currently doing PR work for a nonprofit organization known as I'm Mother sorry, of- I didn't hear that part. I- can't hear it. I am currently doing PR work for a nonprofit organization known as Mother of Many, and the board members, students, and I have been invited to the White House to meet with Mrs. Obama's Let's Move team. As the lead PR person, I was wondering, what advice can you give me to publicize or build a big buzz for our journey to the White House?
3: For your journey to the White House. (laughs) That's a good question. Um, When do you come? When are you coming to the White House? In September. In September, Okay. (laughs) Everybody wants to. Get Everybody's on the a press Let's secretary. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I don't know much about your organization, but I go to the Let's website, and there's lots of ways to participate and to promote the activities that you're doing in your through your organization and with your respective teams around the country, and. I do think then you should probably ask for a photo that you can then release <laughs> um, widely and promote the fact that you were there. Thank and, uh, you. You're welcome. All
2: right, we have time for let's give her a round of applause for okay. her <laughs> organization's tremendous work. We have time for one last
0: question. Um. <clears throat> My name is Bill Spaniel. I'm with the California Society of CPAs. And first of all, I'd like to thank you all for your service to your bosses and to your country in your positions. Uh, Your jobs all sound very exciting. And I'm sure many of us are envious of your positions. But I would like to know what one thing you disliked most about your job and how you overcame that. Okay,
2: well, since we don't have a lot of time and since everybody has answered <laughs> question, one question from the audience except for you, Noelia.
6: <laughs> what I most disliked about my job... At
2: well, let's the, put that, and I'll put a slightly different frame on it if it would help. I'm sorry? I'll put a slightly different frame yeah, on it. If I were about to take a job as a communications advisor to a mayor or to a first lady, what is the one biggest warning you would give me? What should I be careful of? What should I avoid? What's
6: Oh, my gosh, that's a hard question. Um, I think what you should avoid is second-guessing yourself. You should have the, have the confidence in your abilities and in your judgment. But when you start to second-guess yourself, then you start to go down a very slippery slope. So have the confidence of your experiences and your, yeah. and your um, education.
2: Well, we do need to wrap up, but you're lucky because Sheila Tate does have a worst to share with you very quickly. Sheila, let's
5: see what was it? (laughs) (laughs) Which one? (laughs) Um, I think the hardest thing was coming to grips with the fact that anything you say had the potential for being heard around the world, and it it either paralyzes you or you have to learn to deal with it and mm-hmm. with that kind of pressure. It's an enormous uh, amount of pressure and it, it's, it's I, I think it was the toughest thing I had to deal with.
4: And just so that we all have equal time on this um, I think that the, the there's a tendency among organizations to uh, measure success by the absence of failure mm. and particularly in this sort of incredible media landscape that we're in right now, where there's so much pressure on policymakers, there is a reluctance to uh, take risk. And that, if you don't take risk, there's no reward. And if you allow yourself to go down the path of thinking that if I just don't fail, somehow that will translate into success, that is going to be a failed strategy.
2: What I... Terrific note to end on The the great late basketball coach John Wooden used to say That my best players make the most mistakes Mm -hmm. And I think Dave's uh, Framing that same sentiment In the area of public relations and public affairs And the kind of work we all do Is a perfect way of wrapping up an extraordinary Conversation So please join me in thanking Camille Johnson (laughs) Noelia Rodriguez Sheila Tate And David Demarest
0: You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at On the Record, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com. On the Record Online is hosted by Eric Schwartzman, an independent online communications consultant whose clients include the U.S. Department of State, the United States Marine Corps, the U.S. Embassy of Greece, the Government of Singapore, Johnson & Johnson, Toyota, Southern California Edison, the Environmental Defense Fund, and dozens of small to medium-sized organizations. For information about engaging Eric Schwartzman as a speaker, social media trainer, or digital strategist, visit www.ericschwartzman.com or send email to eric at